Ladies, I have a question for you this morning. Do you ever feel like you're being watched? Like someone is checking you out to see what you're going to say, what you're going to do in a particular situation. Well, guess what? We are. The world is watching us. Our neighbors are watching us. As followers of Christ, we're being watched. Whether it be as simple as when we're in that long lineup at the superstore, not knowing that the cashier is in training and is a really slow learner, how's our temper? Does our patience wear thin? And when we're piling into the van on a Sunday morning heading to church and we're really late because everything that could go wrong went wrong that morning, and there's our neighbors in that window watching us again like they do every Sunday morning. What do you do when you find out that the boss's daughter got the promotion that you've applied for just because you're a Christian and he doesn't want a Christian leading the team? As believers, we're being watched more than we think or know. What we say and what we do affects those around us. It affects believers, but it also affects unbelievers. We represent Christ. We are set apart. Our reactions to everyday life situations, our speech, our conduct. We must live in a way that reflects the hope that is within us. We must live in a way that points to the hope that we have, the living hope, as we studied in chapter one, a living hope that is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a hope that will be completed in the future when Jesus returns to take his children home. And this hope, it drives us to live good lives, a righteous life, doing good as followers of Christ, we are called to do just that. And when we do live righteous lives for him, he, we will endure suffering. We are hated and there will be persecution because of our faith. We may get hurt, mocked, rejected, criticized. Even Christians in part of this world may lose their life. And so in today's lesson, we'll see how we are to respond to suffering for righteousness. We'll see what it means to be prepared to be prepared to know what we believe and to know why we believe. We'll see how we are to respond to suffering in light of Christ's victory. Jesus passed from suffering into victory, his victory over evil. So as we begin, let me just pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity for us ladies to join um, together um, to study your word. And um, we just pray that you help us as we open it up, as we read your word. May our hearts and minds be open to receive and understand it and applying it to our lives. And may you be glorified in our study today. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Peter 3, 13-22. Let's start off by just reading verses 13-17. to 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter here is addressing the Christians that were displaced. And remember, they were exiles. They were in Israel because persecution was so strong against them that they ran. They're scattered now in Asia Minor, which we know now is present-day Turkey. Many of them had lost their friends, their families. Many had lost material possessions. They were scattered, exiles, in the middle of hardship, yet they were chosen, living for Christ. They were living righteous lives, doing good in God's sight. And verse 13, Peter asks, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Well, what does what is good mean? Let's look to verse 8 together from our last lesson. Here Peter tells us that all Christians are to what? Can someone read verse 8? Chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. So what are we to be like? Christ. We're to be like Christ, that's right. We're to have, right in that verse, it says we're to have unity of mind. We're to be like-minded, sympathetic. We're commanded to love, have brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble heart. So if we're to live lives like that, who will harm us? And we'd like to think no one, no one will harm us if we do that. But no, it happens. Even today in our society, our culture, it happens. Christians are harmed, insulted, ridiculed for doing what is good, for saying what is right. And verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Peter tells us that if we suffer for righteousness sake, we will be blessed. We are to have confidence in God that he will bless us. We saw in chapter 2, verse 20, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Jesus, on the Sermon of the, on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, he said this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then Peter quotes Isaiah 8, 12 in verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. God reminds Isaiah that even though they were facing troubles in their days, they were to trust the Lord, fear him, and wait on him. And so we're not to fear man or the threats they make. We're not to be troubled by them or their actions, but instead we're to entrust ourselves to God. Even though they faced persecution as exiles in a hostile, evil world, even though we face persecution as exiles in our hostile world, are we being ridiculed because we talk about Christ? This is persecution. Have you been disowned by your family because of your faith in Christ? This is persecution. You are forcibly sectioned into a psychiatric hospital because you've left Islam 
and are now a Christian. This is persecution and happening today in Afghanistan. Your Christian church is forcibly shut down and your leaders are imprisoned on blasphemy because of, of the non-Muslim worship ban. This is persecution happening today in Algeria. You are at immediate risk of imprisonment, brutal torture, and death because you are caught following Jesus. And not only you, but your family shares the same fate as you. This is persecution happening today in North Korea. Yet verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Peter wants to show us that there's more to this. There's a bigger picture here. And in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it. How? With gentleness and respect. So number one, honor Christ as holy. Fully submit to him. Fully worship Christ as Lord of your life. And number two, be prepared. Be prepared to give a defense, an answer, a reason for what we believe, for why we believe. Our lives should have people coming up to us and saying, why are you so different? There's just something about you. I want what you have. They notice little things. Why were you so kind to that cashier when she took so long ringing our groceries through? Or your Sunday routine looks pretty crazy, but you keep going to church. What gives? How could you be friends with that boss's daughter? You should have had her job just because you're a Christian. But they also notice the big things. Your church leaders are in jail, yet you keep singing hymns and you remain joyful. Your family has been imprisoned because of your faith, yet you have hope? They notice and they wonder about us, and they ask, what is driving you to live this good life? How are you coping? What do we tell them? What will we say? At this point, we just tell them. We tell them about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the reason of the hope, the hope of his love, the hope of his glory. We tell them about the good news of salvation in Jesus' death and resurrection. We must be prepared to share our faith, to make a difference. And we're to do this with gentleness and respect, with a Christ-like spirit reflecting his character. Not one that is loud, obnoxious, proud, full of anger, judgmental, or pushy. In Colossians 4, 5, and 6, it reads, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We are to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15. The way we respond is so important because it is our witness to Christ. We are to be respectful of who they are, of their background, of their nationality. We're not, to win an, we're not out there to win an argument or to put people down if they don't agree with us. We are to be gentle and respectful as we share our faith. At the end of today's study, we'll have the opportunity to go over some of those questions that in our table groups that, that you have there. And, um, I think it would be great at, at the end if our groups would consider just sharing 
um, their answers to question two with the, with the broader group. And question two is, what would you say to someone who asked you to give an, an account of the hope that is within you? But for now, let's just move on to verse 16. So we're to share the reason for the hope we have with gentleness and respect. And verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The Barnes Commentary explains having a good conscience in this way. That is, a conscience that does not accuse you of having done wrong. Whatever may be the accusations of your enemies, so live that you may be at all times conscious of uprightness. Whatever you suffer, see that you do not suffer the pangs inflicted by a guilty conscience, the anguish of remorse. So a good conscience, we are to act righteously, living in fear and humility. Our behavior is to be Christ-like. And how much better it is to suffer for doing good, for doing the will of God, for following his plan, than it is for doing evil, for lashing out in anger, resorting to revenge and hate, and then suffering for the consequences of our own sin. And those who speak against you, they will be put to shame. They will one day recognize that Jesus is Lord of all and will bow their heads in shame. In 1 Peter 2, 6, we see that believers will not be put to shame. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But those who speak against us, against our beliefs, against the Lord, when they see our good conduct, it will prove them wrong and make them ashamed for speaking against us, against the good that we do. We must continually do good, do right, and amidst our suffering, it gives us the opportunity to share the love of Christ and all that he means to us. We've now come to the next section, verses 18 to 22, the section where Peter encourages us to look to Christ. We are to look to Christ as an example of one who suffered. As one who not only suffered, but one who was victorious over suffering and injustice. One who triumphed over sin and death. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here it is, ladies, the gospel message. Jesus suffered once for all sin. He was mocked, beaten, whipped, flogged, hung on a cross. His body was pierced. Jesus suffered. He was righteous, sinless, but he took the penalty for doing wrong. Jesus suffered. He was righteous, yet he suffered for us, sinners, the unrighteous. Undeservingly, he suffered, and on a cross he died so that he might bring us to God. It's not by our works, nothing that we have done, but he suffered and died for our salvation. But he didn't remain dead. He was raised from the dead, and he lives. And we'll see later, Peter mentions in verse 22, that Jesus is now at the right hand of God. Jesus defeated both sin and death. He rose from the dead, giving us a living hope, 
a hope rooted in Christ's love. Christ suffered enormously, yet he conquered. He is victorious. And his victory over suffering, over evil, over death, we must keep this in mind when we suffer for our faith, when we are unjustly mistreated. Christ's victory, it should be on our minds and it should motivate us to live righteous lives in this evil world. And it also is an example to us. Christ was fully submissive to his Father. He went to the cross fearing nothing and we are to follow his example, being fully submissive to him. Whether we go through good or bad rough times, we can know that we don't have anything to fear when we follow Christ. Let's now read verses 19 and 20. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Well, I read this and I thought, okay, hmm, spirits in prison, Noah, the ark, what does this mean? (laughs) Then I read it again and again. I thought, okay, I really don't know what this means. So I opened up a number of commentaries and I found that these verses were, um, and I quote, subject to many interpretations. So some biblical scholars say that the spirits in prison were those wicked people in Noah's time that disobeyed God, that Christ preached to them through the mouth of Noah. Some biblical scholars say that these were imprisoned spirits, fallen angels that disobeyed God at that time and that Jesus went to them to declare his victory over death. Others say the spirits were those in Hades or hell who died before or during the flood and that Christ, during the time between his death and resurrection, went to them to proclaim something to them. And did he proclaim God's message? Did he preach the good news? Or did he proclaim a message of judgment or and final condemnation? Um, it was interesting, as I studied, I found that many of the biblical scholars, they quoted the famous reformer Martin Luther. And here is what Martin Luther says about verses 19 and 20. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty what, just what Peter means. Well, so the scholars don't know what this means. Martin Luther, um, they aren't certain what this means. So, okay, great. So instead of focusing on what's unclear about the passage, we're going to focus on what's clear. And it's basically that we know that even though Christ was crucified, he was put to death, he was made alive, we know that he lives. And he suffered unjustly for our sake. And now he has complete victory over suffering, over sin, over death, over all evil, over all evil spirits, and over Satan. And then as Peter finishes off this chapter, he now throws in some comparisons. Verses 21 and 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So it speaks about baptism, which corresponds to this. Well, corresponds to what? Well, in the section that we just looked at before, Peter mentions Noah and the ark and how Noah and his family were brought safely through water, how they were spared, how they were saved. And with this, Peter helps us understand baptism. First, we're going to think about Noah's time and what happened. Noah and his family, they suffered for their faith in God. They faced hostility, ridicule. Noah was mocked for his faith, for believing in God, for building a ginormous boat and thinking that destruction and God's judgment was coming with water, rain that they had never even seen before. Yet, as we know, the waters did come. God sent the waters, floods covered the whole earth, bringing judgment upon the wicked, sinful people, killing them all. All but a few, a few were saved, eight righteous people, Noah and his family. Safe in the ark, saved by being brought up out of water. They were carried to a new world. Noah's submission led to his salvation. Noah was saved because he trusted in God. Noah's salvation was connected to water. And now our salvation, it too is connected to water. Although in verse 21 it says baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you, it isn't the act of baptism or the water that saves you. Being submerged in the tank doesn't make you clean. It doesn't wash you and bring you salvation. The Enduring Word Bible Commentary explained it in this way. Peter was careful to point out that it isn't the actual water washing of baptism that saves us, but the spiritual reality behind the immersion in water. What really saves us is the answer of a good conscience toward God, a conscience made good through the completed work of Jesus. The act of baptism is an expression of faith and obedience. The act of baptism is an outward testimony of an inward change. Baptism identifies us with Christ. It's a public declaration of our faith and hope in Christ to a world that is, yes, watching us. As we are immersed into the water, it's a symbol of having our sins cleansed, death to sin. We bury our old life because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. As we are raised out of the water, it's a symbol of being raised to new life, being transformed by Christ, identifying to his resurrection. We are saved by grace because of the work of Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are commanded as followers of Christ to be baptized. We're to follow the example of Christ, who himself was baptized. This is only a brief explanation of what baptism is and what it means. But if you want to know more um, about what baptism is, and, or if you're wanting to get baptized and you've just been holding off for some reason, I'd love to encourage you this Sunday, March 27th, 9 a.m., we're holding a baptism class and that just fits in so great with this lesson. Um, it's a class where you can just come, answer questions, get a deeper understanding for what baptism is. 
So baptism illustrates a believer's identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's our identification with Christ, one who suffered unjustly, yet our identification is with Christ, one who triumphs. He triumphed over sin and death, and now he sits at the right hand of God. He suffered for doing good. He did this all for us, and now he sits in the place of greatest honor. He's at the right hand of God. He is the victorious king. Jesus has ultimate authority over all angels, authorities, and powers. Jesus holds the ultimate authority over all governments, all leaders, all people in every position, in our workplace, in our marriage, all those that we just studied about in the last few lessons, all those that we studied about earlier that we have been commanded to submit to, Jesus is an authority over them all. As we, as believers, face day-to-day -day trials and struggles, as we, as believers, face the pain of being mistreated or experiencing injustice, or as we face persecution of various kinds, may we live a righteous life. May people see Jesus in us. And as we look to Christ's victory over suffering, may we be ready to speak to others about the living hope that we have in Christ Jesus so that others too may come to receive Christ and the salvation that he so freely gives. May Christ's victory change the way we live and may we find comfort as we reflect on the finished work of Jesus, his ultimate victory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have new life in you because of your victory and power over sin and death. We pray that your words of truth are planted deep within us, helping us to keep focused on what is right and um, even though we may face struggles or trials or hardships for following you and for doing right, may we not fear man, Lord, but may we trust you and trust your purposes and plans for us. Or may we continually be lights for you. May, we shine, may you shine through us and um, may we make a difference sharing the hope that we have in you to a world that so desperately needs you. May you be glorified and honored today and forevermore. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.